0: Up your Bibles to Proverbs 23. No, it like Proverbs 23. Open up your Bibles. <laughs> we have been in an ongoing study of Revelation. Actually, for the last 10 weeks, we've been covering what's known as chapters 2 through 3, which is what? Church, Church history church history. God has given us history in advance from all the way back during John's time of 90 AD. He told us and foretold us everything that was going to happen for the next 2,000 years leading up to the rapture of the church. That was part one. And I know it might seem like it took uh, quite a lengthy time to get there, but man, I got to tell you, as I have mentioned in our introduction to church history and, and even just with the intro to chapter one, history does matter. You guys might not think so because of maybe you have a horrible history teacher or maybe because you think history is just nothing but a whole bunch of names and dates. But I'm telling you guys this, if you don't know where you have come from, not just talking about church history, talking about your own past, talking about your own history your own struggles that you've gone through, your own challenges that you've had to face. If you don't know where you've come from, you're not going to know where you stand today. If you don't know where you stand today, you're not going to be able to see where it is that you are going. And if that's the case... If a landmark like church history, if the monumentous last two thousand years of human history is removed from your understanding, if you do not have a grasp, in other words, on chapters two and three of the book of Revelation, you are not going to see where we're going next. It was utterly crucial to go through and to spend that much time on it because church history is a landmark. Proverbs twenty-three, ten. I love this verse, especially in relation to church history. He says, remove not the old, what? And enter not into the fields of the fatherless. You know, whenever planes, whether it be of a commercial jet or a military plane of any kind, whenever they're flying, they have certain landmarks, they have certain checkpoints they need to hit. In fact, you can hear and see even military stories throughout history of bomber pilots who have ended up completely deserted and crashed into the middle of nowhere because they missed their landmark. They missed their check-in point of where they were supposed to go, and as a result, they were completely deserted, and they couldn't be found from their comrades, from their brothers-in-arms. They could not be found because they missed the landmark, and they entered into the fields of the fatherless. You know what it means to enter into the fields of the fatherless? It means you are someone who has no heritage. You don't know where it is you came from. As I stated already, If you don't know where you came from, you're not going to see where you are today, and consequently, you're not going to see what's coming next. And it's very, very important, especially as we move forward in this study. I want to draw your attention to what's up here on the screen. We covered this all the way back 10 weeks ago on night one. This is the layout. This is the outline, if you will, of the entire book of Revelation. We saw that chapters 1 through 3, it has to do with the past. Not just our past, but from the time frame and the standpoint of where the Apostle John is writing from. The Bible says in chapter 1 that he was transported to the Lord's day. The Lord's day is a phrase as you study it out through the Bible. It's not just one specific day when Jesus Christ comes back. Yes, that's coming later on in this study. But the Lord's Day encompasses a whole slew of days that starts with the rapture of the church and goes into this seven-year tribulation period where God is dealing with Israel and then concludes with his millennial reign. But what kick-starts it, what starts the day of the Lord off is the rapture of the church. We saw in week one that John is writing from the perspective of the Lord's Day, which means he's right here chapter 4 of the book of Revelation and Jesus Christ gives him a commission write the things thou hast seen the last 2,000 years from our vantage point the things which are which is the present the seven year tribulation and the things which shall be hereafter We spent the last 10 weeks covering church history, where we came from, the the things which have been. And now on your outline, we dive into part two of the book of Revelation. From John's perspective and his standpoint, where he's writing from, it's the rapture and tribulation, or the things which are. Now, don't get confused by that. It's the things from which are, from his perspective, But for you and I right now at this moment in time, these are the things which shall be hereafter, as we'll soon see. Go ahead and flip on over to Revelation chapter 4. We have hinted at this the last couple of weeks of church history, but it's worth noting... That after chapter 3 with the Laodicean church, a church that is described as lukewarm, a church that does not take a stand for Christ, but at the same time, they're not completely in the muck and the mire of the world. They're not completely lost. No, they're just complacent. They have one foot in the world and they have one foot on top of their closed Bible. But hey, at least they have a Bible. Isn't that good enough? That's the Laodicean mindset. It's the time and age that's described right now. And as I had said before, after chapter 3, the word church is not found anywhere in the rest of the book of Revelation until chapter 19, when Jesus Christ comes back with the church. So that must mean something happens in chapter 4. Before we dive into that, let's go ahead and open up in a word of prayer. Father, I thank you, uh, even though it was a lengthy introduction, Lord, it was... um, it was needed to get us all into the right frame of mind. It's been a, quite a long while since we were reconnected with the introduction of the book of Revelation and that not only is it just talking about the end times, not only is it just a book that's describing what is coming up next for those who do not have a relationship with you, for those who have never given their lives over to Jesus Christ and trusted in Him alone as Savior. Lord, it's not just about that. It's a book about your glory. This is a book that reveals the majesty, the power, the awesomeness of who Jesus Christ is. And I hope and I pray that we see that tonight. Father, we have a lot to chew off tonight. There's a lot of verses, there's a lot of passages, and this is some heavy doctrinal stuff we're going to cover. I keep going back to that question that we ask when we think about the end times. Do you wonder... Do you wonder how close we are to the end? Do you wonder how much time we actually have left? I hope tonight puts the fear of God into every single one of our hearts. A fear that motivates us to love the lost and to see them through your eyes. A fear that motivates us to get our hearts right with you. A fear that motivates us to do what you ask. So I pray you'd have your way with us tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Revelation chapter 4, verse 1. after this... After what? Church history. After this, I looked, and behold, a door was opened in heaven, and the first voice which I heard was, as it were, of a trumpet talking with me, which said, Come up hither, and I will show thee things which must be hereafter. And immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne was set in heaven, and one sat on the throne. Point number one on your outline, what we are looking at, especially with these first two verses, it is the rapture. But what you may not know is that the rapture, at least the rapture in our minds, there's actually a three-fold process to it. And the beginning part of the rapture, the first rapture, if you will, I'm not talking about the Old Testament pictures of the rapture, not talking about Old Testament saints who were a typology or a representation of the rapture. No, I'm talking about a New Testament rapture. There's really only three in the whole Bible. That's what we're going to cover here. In part one, letter A on your outline, it's what's known as the first fruits. We're going to be speaking very, very Jewish and using Old Testament terminology to understand this because one of the passages we're going to look at later is going to show you how the rapture is described in the Bible as a mystery. Now, a mystery in the Bible, it's never meant to be conniving or deceptive like a murder mystery where you're not supposed to know who did it. No, a mystery in the Bible, it was something that was once hidden in the Old Testament and then revealed in the New. There are a lot of things that God did in the Old Testament that many of the saints, many of the prophets, they didn't really get and grasp. But now that you and I are on the other side, we have a completed Bible that contains an Old and a New Testament. Things are made completely clear to us, and it's like the lights are turned on. We can now see things. In the New Testament, there are three raptures that occur. As it pertains to the first fruits, turn over to Matthew chapter 27. In what is a passage of scripture, I am utterly shocked that does not get more fanfare. Because I guarantee there have been many of you in here, if you've read this, you probably just read right over it and not thought about it. But before we actually check out the passage, look at point one on your outline, a definition, if you will, of the word first fruit. The first fruit, it's the fruit or produce, Sorry. Fruit or produce that first matured and collected, to fill in your blank, in any season. Now it's of these the Jews made an oblation to God, or an offering, so to speak, as an acknowledgement of His sovereign dominion. Uh, those passages that are up on point number one on your outline, Deuteronomy 16, 16, Exodus 23, those Old Testament passages are talking about this type of offering. The first fruits of the nation of Israel's offering to God. You can check those out later. Now check out verse, or Matthew 27. Look at verse 52. Uh, for context, verse 50. Jesus, when he had cried again with a loud voice, yielded up the ghost. And behold... The veil of the temple was rent in twain from the top to the bottom and the earth did quake and the rocks rent. What's going on here? What just happened? Jesus just died died on the cross. Paid the price for the sins of all of mankind. And that temple, that that veil that covered what was known as the Holy of Holies inside the tabernacle, or in this time in history, the temple, it was where God was supposed to be. God is a spirit, and it was His actual dwelling place. Inside that Holy of Holies, it was called, and there was a veil there because it was where the Shekinah, that brightness of His glory and of His majesty and of His power, it was veiled back there behind this curtain And as soon as he dies, that veil is ripped and torn from the top to the bottom. Top to the bottom. You guys get it. In other words, God's not there anymore. He's not going to be constrained to a temple, at least made of bricks and mortar. He was going to be embodying these temples now. It was now open to all, not just the priests. That's what he was getting at. But look at verse 52. And the what? Graves were opened, and many bodies of the saints which slept, or were dead, arose. Has anyone ever seen that before? That at the death of Jesus Christ, there were bodies rising again from the grave, coming back from the dead, That is incredible. Why is that not talked about in every Easter passage? Every Easter ceremony. And not only that, verse 53, and came out of the graves after his resurrection. So even after he rose again, there were people still coming back from the dead. And not only that, but they went into the holy city and appeared unto many. This is incredible to me. That Old Testament saints, because again, before the cross, it was still technically the Old Testament economy of things, according to Hebrews chapter 9. It's not until the death of the testator that you enter into a New Testament. So this is the Old Testament. So the saints back then, at his death, and then even after in his resurrection, Old Testament believers were rising again from the grave and walking around testifying to the city. Now think about that. Why didn't everybody get saved? All of these people coming back out of their graves, coming back to life from the dead, and you mean to tell me that not all of Jerusalem didn't get saved? You mean to tell me that Rome and the Roman Empire didn't completely like, oh, crap, we were right, or we were wrong. He was right. We shouldn't have done that. Oopsie. We'll do whatever you have to say. No. No. You know why? There's an interesting passage in Luke chapter 16, if you want to write that down. And despite what some Christians or Christian groups will tell you, it is not a parable. Because a parable always has to do with a figurative person, or a metaphorical so-and-so, a father and a son, yada, yada, yada. It's a picture representation. No, when Christ is speaking here in Luke chapter 16, He mentions very, very specifically A man by the name of Lazarus. A man by the name of Abraham. He mentions specific people that are real people that show up in Scripture. And there was this rich man who dies and goes to hell. And then there was Lazarus. And there was one in hell. And Lazarus was in what's known as Abraham's bosom. Abraham's bosom was heaven for the Old Testament. And they were both centered in the middle of the earth. And this rich man being in torments in hell is crying out for Abraham on the other side of this gulf that was between the two places. He says, please send someone back from the dead to talk to my family. You know what Abraham said? They have Moses and the prophets. They have the word of God. If they won't believe what's found in this book, they're not going to believe the one rose again from the dead. And that point was made abundantly clear when Jesus did what we just read in Matthew 27. Imagine all the people that rose again from the grave, walked around the city, and people still didn't believe. Oh, I'll get saved when I see God do a miracle. Nope. We've just been covering that on Tuesday nights at the outreach study. It's not the point of the miracles. People had faith first and then they saw the miracle afterwards. So on your outline here, point two, the first fruit of the rapture, this first part of the rapture, if you will, it is the resurrection and rapture of the Lord Jesus Christ. But not only that, it's the first fruits consisting of the subsequent resurrection and rapture of the saints that appeared unto many in Jerusalem. Because think about it after Jesus rose again from the grave and he's walking around for 40 days what happens in Acts chapter 1 does he die again and then they have to bury him a second time no what happens what happens to Christ he ascends up into the clouds what happened to all of the saints who rose again from the grave in Matthew 27 they went with him That's the first fruits. That's the first rapture. If you want to also write down another passage, we don't have time to look at it, but you guys can look at this as well. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 8 through 10. It says, Wherefore he saith, when he, talking about Jesus, ascended up on high, he led captivity captive. Those souls of the faithful who were in Abraham's bosom, down in the the belly of the earth, those faithful saints in the old testament they were captive down there with the unfaithful that were in hell and he led captivity captive and gave gifts unto men he that descended is the same also that ascended up far above all heavens that he might fill all things when jesus christ went down into the tomb at his death he went down there and the Bible says as you study out later on I think it's 2 Peter that Jesus Christ preached to all of the demons the devils and all those who are in chains in hell he preached a message for three days and then he took those in Abraham's bosom and when he resurrected took them up with him and they got all of them up they were the first fruits that were raptured that's part one of the rapture they didn't die again Something else that's interesting, I almost forgot to mention this. We read in Revelation 4 where he talks about come up hither. That phrase come up hither is mentioned three times in the scripture. The first mention is Proverbs 25, 7. For better it is that it be said unto thee, Come up hither, than that thou shouldest be put lower in the presence of the prince whom thine eyes have seen. When those in Abraham's bosom saw the prince and their eyes had seen him it was better that Jesus Christ took him out and led captivity of captive up to heaven up above where God the Father is than for them to have stayed there and there's a historical application of that as well I just kind of mentioned to you guys the devotional but if there's a doctrinal or I guess that was the doctrinal if there is a devotional to this let me just tell you It's a lot better for some of you in here to hear the words come up hither than that thou shouldest be put in the lower presence of the earth. You don't want to be in the lower presence of the earth. You would rather hear come up hither. Question is, are you ready to hear the words come up hither? And we'll we'll see so in a little bit here. Part number two, letter B. What's known as the harvest. Turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. First point on your outline, what is the harvest? Again, another Old Testament picture. The harvest is the product of labor, the fruit or fruits. It's the season of reaping and gathering in corn or other crops. It especially refers to the time of collecting corn or grain, which is the chief food of men, as wheat and rye. It is the chief food. And when we're talking about the rapture, this is the chief part of the rapture that we're all very well familiar with. This is the one we saw in the second mention of the phrase, come up hither, in Revelation 4. After this I looked, behold, a door was opened in heaven, and the first voice, which I heard, was as it were of a trumpet talking with me, which said, come up hither. Hither, And I will show thee things which must be hereafter. We talked before about how the Apostle John, whom this is speaking to here, he's a picture and a type of the church. And again, this happens at chapter 4, verse 1, after church history, where the church is no more to be found until chapter 19, verse 10. In 1 Corinthians 15, look with me in verse 51. Paul's writing, he says, Behold, I show unto you a mystery. I had already defined what that is. It was hidden in the Old Testament but now it's made new. Can anybody name for me one picture of someone who was raptured in the Old Testament? A foreshadowing, if you will, of this rapture? Hmm? Elijah. Elijah. He was caught up in a whirlwind up to the sky. He didn't die. He did not see death. He was caught up and raptured away. Somebody else? Enoch. Enoch, who was the seventh from Adam. Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamos, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea. Seventh church. And after that, Enoch, the seventh from Adam. The Bible says he had this testimony that he pleased the Lord. He walked with him and then one day he was not. You study out Genesis chapter 5, I think it's specifically verse 24, but read all of Genesis chapter 5. You know what the nickname of Genesis chapter 5 is? It's called the great funeral chapter of the Bible, where everybody, after Adam and Eve sinned, and they lost that threefold image of God, they were reproducing in their own kind of just a whole bunch of dead weight, a whole bunch of just dead sinners who were born into sin with two-part beings, and they die because that's the wages of sin. It's death. And they died, and they died, and they died, and you keep on reading, and then you come to Enoch, and just like Elijah, he didn't die. He walked with God. You walk with God, you have a relationship with God where you come to a point, a single defining point in your life where you made a decision to not trust in your own works, to not trust in your own ideas of what you think God wants from you, to not trust in your religion or your good works or your baptism or your communion or your confirmation or anything that any church or man has to tell you, you stopped and come to the end of yourself, and trust the Lord Jesus Christ, and you call upon Him to save you. That. That is where you will begin your walking with God. That is where you will begin your relationship with God. And as a result, you too, be walking with Him, and one day you will be not, for the Lord will take you. That's the mystery. It was hidden in the Old Testament. And now he's revealing it. Verse 51. "We shall not all sleep, He says. We're not all going to die, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, for the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we, talking about we that remain, shall be changed. For this corruptible, I'm just talking about this this past Sunday, this flesh, this body that's not yet been redeemed, it's still corrupt. It must put on incorruption. And this mortal must put on immortality. So, when this corruptible shall put on incorruption and this mortal shall put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written Death is swallowed up in victory. O oh, death, where is thy sting? O oh, grave, where is thy victory? Do you understand that when Jesus Christ was on the cross, he took your death? Right. Think about this in light of a honeybee. What happens with a honeybee? It's got a stinger, doesn't it? It has a sting. And if you get in its way and you anger it and it stings you, what's going to happen to that bee? Dead. You're going to die. That sting, it only has one sting. Death chose to put its sting into Christ. He took the hit for us on the cross. He took our death. And now all of us who trusted in Him... We die no more. because he took it. The sting of death is sin, verse 56, and the sting and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Flip on over to First Thessalonians chapter four. The other New Testament passage that talks about this rapture, the rapture that again, I'm sure most of us are familiar with. 1 Thessalonians 4, look at verse 13. But I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren. So in 1 Corinthians, he says, behold, I show you a mystery. And in 1 Thessalonians, he's saying, hey, don't be ignorant, brethren. In other words, do you think he's wanting us to know this? Do you think he's wanting us to be abundantly clear as to what he is saying as far as when the rapture happens and why it's so important and pertinent to us? I think that's the message he's trying to get across. Concerning them which are asleep, that ye sorrow not, even as others which have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus, will God bring with him. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them which are asleep. In other words, people who are alive at the time of the rapture, we don't go first, we go second. The people who are dead in Christ, who got saved before they died, they're going to be resurrected and raptured up first, and then us second. Verse 16, For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So shall we ever be with the Lord and don't miss verse 18. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. Are you going through something right now? Are you struggling internally with thoughts that you've had? Somebody, the way that somebody treats you, the way that maybe you're talking with your parents right now, or maybe a rift with somebody in here, or even just kind of had enough of everything. Life, school, parents, job, fill in the blank. You know what? God specifically had this passage in here, not just to show us a cool little doctrinal trick. Not just to show us a cool little doctrinal tidbit about the Word of God. No. He put this specific passage, that was a tongue twister, in the Bible to comfort you. So that if you're going through whatever it is, you know there's an end coming. I'm not going to deal with this forever. So can I maybe pull myself up by my bootstraps or rather let God pick me up after I fall down to my knees and cry out to Him for help on this issue and then pull myself up on my bootstraps after that and then get pressing forward and marching towards the beat of the drum of where He's leading me? Not the beat of your own drum, which is probably how people got into the mess they got into in the first place and why they find themselves on their knees before Him. Be comforted with these words there is an end coming to your pain, to your sorrow. But we have to endure right now. We have to endure. And if you know somebody who's struggling, comfort them with these words. On your outline, point number two. The harvest of the rapture refers to the resurrection rapture of the body of Christ, the sons of God. We'll look at 1 John 3.2 later, but I love Philippians 3.21. He says that when that day happens for you and me, Those of us who know Christ, who are saved, it says that He's going to change our vile body that it may be fashioned like unto His glorious body. This is the purchased possession, the the redemption of our bodies to wit that we talked about in Romans chapter 8 this past Sunday. Beautiful passage, beautiful cross references. But then it brings us to part number three, which is known as the gleanings. And to understand that third rapture, we have to go to the third mention in the bible of come up hither which is revelation 11 verse 12 and they heard a great voice from heaven saying unto them come up hither and they ascended up to heaven in a cloud and their enemies beheld them well that's interesting they're surrounded by enemies at this part whenever this rapture takes place that gives us a little bit of a hint that gives us a little bit of an insight as far as to when this rapture takes place but back on your outline definition of the word gleaning it's gathering what reapers leave so in other words whatever reapers get from the first fruits and whatever they gather from the harvest whatever is left behind that's what the gleanings are it's collecting in small detached parcels. The act of gathering after reapers. You remember Ruth? She was gathering the sheaves that fell on the ground that were left behind. Oh, we got to check this out. So Revelation eleven twelve. We'll get to that in a little bit. I have Hosea six eleven here on the screen as well. We're going somewhere with this, so follow along and pay attention. He says in Hosea six eleven. Also, oh, who? One of the tribes of Israel. He hath set in harvest for thee when I returned the captivity of my people. This time in history, who are God's people? The Jews, nation of Israel. Turn over to Psalm 50. more passages here that we're going to turn to and I'm going to read, then we're going to give you guys a chance. starting to get a little bit more deeper into doctrinal, especially as it pertains to this tribulation period, because man, there is a lot to unpack. Psalm 50. Follow with me in verse 1. The mighty God, even the Lord, hath spoken and called the earth from the rising of the sun unto the going down thereof. Out of where? The perfection of beauty God hath shined. Our God shall come and shall not keep silence. A fire shall devour before him, and it shall be very tempestuous round about him. You know what that means? That means a fiery, fearsome storm. That means not a good time to be had by all or any for that matter. He shall call to the heavens from above, verse 4, and to the earth that he may judge his people. Gather my saints together unto me those that have made a covenant with me by what? Understand something. You and I are in a covenant with the Lord Jesus Christ because of his sacrifice, but you and I are not in a covenant with God because of any sacrifice that we make. This is something that is specifically for Jews. It's the Old Testament Levitical law. Verse 6 And the heavens shall declare his righteousness, for God is judge himself, Selah. This is very much a Jewish oriented rapture. He's talking about gathering his saints together unto him after something tempestuous happens, after a fierce storm brews that is unlike any other storm ever in history. Isaiah 26, verse 20 and 21 on the screen here. He says, Come, my people, enter thou into thy chambers, and shut thy doors about thee. Hide thyself as it were for a little moment. We're going to talk briefly next week as to why they're hiding. Until the indignation, that tempestuous storm, be overpassed. For behold, the Lord cometh out of his place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity the earth also shall disclose her blood and shall no more cover her slain again Isaiah this time in history who are his people is it the church the bride of Christ no because Christ won't come on the scene for another 700 years at this moment of this writing he's talking about his people Israel one last place turn over to Matthew 24 Matthew 24. Hmm. This is the New Testament. These are the Gospels. We already covered the harvest rapture. Hmm. Look at verse 29. Jesus is speaking here, and He says in verse 29, Immediately after the what? Tribulation Tribulation of those days... "...shall the sun be darkened, and the moon shall not give her light, and the stars shall fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens shall be shaken. And then shall appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven, and then shall all the tribes of the earth mourn." You know, those ones in Revelation eleven twelve 12 that we looked at, when it says, come up hither for the third and last time, and they're surrounded by their enemies? The ones who are chasing them down... Why they have to hide from indignation that is overpassing them. And they shall see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven and power and great glory. Verse 31. When that happens, and He shall send His angels with a great sound of a trumpet, and they shall gather together His elect from the four winds and from one end of heaven to the other. He's going to gather them up. Now why would I show you guys this passage? Because as we've already looked at in part two, this has absolutely nothing to do with the rapture of the church that we are waiting for in Revelation chapter 4. But that's not what most of Christianity thinks. In fact, there are quite a few misguided souls who take this passage and apply it to the church and teach this as doctrine today. Some even go by the name Baptists. Some even used to be members here at this very church. This passage, even though it's Christ speaking here, even though He's speaking to His disciples, He is not talking about the harvest rapture of Revelation 4, 1 and 2. He's talking about the third rapture, the rapture of the gleanings in Revelation eleven twelve. 12. The tribulation. It happens after the tribulation. The church is not going to be here for the tribulation period, as we've already said, ad nauseum, because the word church is nowhere found after chapter 3 in Revelation All of these passages that we've looked at in the Old Testament talking about my people, talking about Zion, talking about Judah, talking about my people, they all have to do with Israel. That's why, back on your outline, the gleanings in part 2, or point 2 rather, The gleanings of the rapture refers to the resurrection or rapture of the tribulation saints just prior to the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, that doesn't mean that it's only Jews in Israel who get saved in a rapture to this, but they are the ones, as we'll see in a few weeks here, that lead the charge. They become the new church, for lack of a better term. Again, we'll explain it more in depth in weeks to come, but for the sake of putting it in your vernacular that you understand... They become the new vehicle that God uses to lead the greatest missionary trip, the greatest missionary journey, probably since the Philadelphian church age with what we saw those guys do. That's what's going on here. Man. So that's the rapture. Those are the the three-part definition of the rapture and the different times in which they take place. But honestly, part one already happened. Part three, we're going to be witnessing from heaven when it happens. Really, the one that's more pertinent to us is the second one, because it has everything to do with us. So that's why in letter D, we're going to look at the timeline of the harvest of the church, because it's the next one in line, and it's the one that applies to us. So point number one, here's what we're going to do. I want everybody in the first two rows up to Hannah to go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. All the rest of y'all go to 1 Corinthians 15. Yes, I know we looked at these two passages already. But we're going to jump back and forth and we're going to see some things on them. Be ready to read. What was the seed part like the gleaning like? The act of gathering after reapers. So letter D, the timeline of the harvest of the church. In other words, when's the rapture of the church going to take place? Point number one. The trump or the voice of God shall sound born again of believers out by name. And at the same time, the lost will hear thunder. Can I get somebody to read who has 1 Thessalonians 4? Read uh, verse 16. A.J.? (coughs) For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, and with the shout, with the voice of a, of the archangel, and with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. The voice with a shout. John chapter 12, verse 28 says this. I love this. Father, glorify thy name. That's what Jesus said. Then came there a voice from heaven saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it. Can you imagine sitting there? That day, you're with Jesus and he prays a prayer like that and then instantaneously you hear this voice. I have glorified it and will glorify it. The people, therefore, that stood by and heard it said, it thundered. Hmm. Others said, an angel spake to him. Jesus answered and said, This voice came not because of me, but for your sakes. This is a great cross-reference here. Shows that, you know what? When this day comes... There are going to be some people that hear a voice. But the rest of people, well, must be raining outside. Or holy smokes, boy, was that thunder loud. But before they even know what hit them, all chaos is going to be breaking out. I have Job 37 here. Listen to this. I love this. At this also my heart trembleth and is moved out of its place. Hear attentively the noise of his voice and the sound that goeth out of his mouth. He directeth it under the whole heaven and his lightning unto the ends of the earth. After it a voice roareth, he thundereth with the voice of his excellency, and he will not stay them with his voice when his voice is heard. God thundereth marvelously with his voice, great things doeth he which we cannot comprehend. This is Job talking about a tribulation he was going through. And I think what he's describing here is exactly what's going to happen when that tribulation takes place here. A whole bunch of people are going to disappear miraculously. By and large, everybody else, they're just going to hear thunder. And they're not going to know, they're not going to comprehend what great things he's doing. I love John chapter 10 also. It talks about his sheep. His sheep hear his voice because they know his voice because they follow his voice. Are you following his voice? Do you know his voice? Do you hear his voice? If you don't have a relationship with him, you might want to evaluate yourself to see whether or not you be in the faith. Ta-da. Sorry, number two. Second thing that happens, those asleep in Christ shall raise first in their glorified bodies. We had already touched on this, but can I get a reader for verses 14 and 15? Sam. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them which are asleep. 1 Corinthians 15, 55b, or just all of 55. I need a reader for that. Who's already there? Second half of the room. Jamie. Death where is thy sting? A grave where is thy victory? It's going to be no more. There's not going to be any more power for the grave to hold those who are saved, believers in Christ who are in the grave. No, they're gone. Point three, those in Christ that are alive and remain shall be changed instantly into their glorified bodies. 1 Thessalonians 4.17, a reader. Garrett. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. All right, 1 Corinthians 15.52 and 55a. Bueller, Kiana. In a moment, in a mom and I, at the last trump, for the trumpet shall sound and the dead shall be raised and, and we shall be changed. We shall be changed. Again, we mentioned it in Romans chapter eight that our body groans; it yearns for that change. If yours doesn't, if you don't find yourself looking forward to that day, you might be getting too comfortable in the body that you're presently in. That is a problem you might want to again evaluate that because I'm telling you what as we just spent the last 10 weeks looking we don't have much longer left in these bodies are you ready are you ready especially with what comes immediately after the rapture for the people that are left behind here no for us we'll get to that in the second page point number 4 the whole body of Christ shall meet the lord in the air and forever be with the lord 1st Thessalonians 4:17 Kendall. Then we, which are alive and remain, shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Hey, anybody here lose a loved one who trusted in Christ as their Savior? Yeah, you're going to be reunited with them. You're going to see them again. It'll be the greatest reunion party of all time. You had a lost, a loved friend who trusted in Christ that maybe died too soon know of somebody, you're going to see them. Any saint, any of those guys that we talked about in the Philadelphian church period, those missionaries, those pastors, old family members of ours that we love, we're going to see them. We're all going to be gathered in the air for the greatest party on earth. Well, not on earth. In between the earth and heaven. One of the heavens. There's three heavens up there. You get it. Party in the air. And you just don't care. Wave your hands like you just don't care. I am so white. All right, next page. (laughs) Part number five. You know what? Turn over to Revelation chapter four. I know I said I wasn't going to make you guys turn any more places. Revelation chapter four. You've heard me talk about 2 Corinthians 5 many times already in here. Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord we persuade men. What terror of the Lord? The fact that He's going to come back one day, He's going to judge the earth, He's going to condemn those who in flaming fire taking vengeance on them who know not the love of God and haven't received the love of God? No. 2 Corinthians 5 is talking about us, Christians, who when we go, after we're raptured out of here, instantaneously almost we're going to be placed before the King for our day in court. Not for judgment for our sins. No, that was dealt with on the cross. No. We're going to have our day in court to see what did we do in this body while we were here as saved individuals. What are we going to answer Him? How do we know that? Well, in Revelation 4, we see the rapture take place in verses 1 and 2, but then jump down to verse 9. And when those beasts give glory and honor and thanks to him that sat on the throne who liveth forever and ever, the four in 20 elders fall down before him there's a lot of debate about these 4 and 20 elders. We don't have the time to dig into verse by verse with the rest of the book of Revelation. I'm sorry. But the 4 and 20 elders, some people think that it's, it's the, the 24 patriarchs, the 12 uh, tribes of Israel in the Old Testament are represented there, and then the 12 disciples. But when you look at the word elder as a pastor in the Bible, in the New Testament, and when you look at the fact that these elders have crowns in their heads, the only people in the Bible in the New Testament that are given crowns, it's the church. And here, it says they fall down before Him that sat on the throne. And what did they do? Worship Him that liveth forever and ever. And they cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for Thou hast created all things, and for Thy pleasure they are and were created. Let me just tell you this is worship. Not what we do on Sundays, not any concert we go to. Doesn't matter how many people have their hands up in the air. That is not worship. This is worship. Remember what Jesus said to the woman at the well in Samaria in John 4? The hour is coming that they which worship me, the true worshipers, have to worship me in spirit and in truth. You have to be saved. You have to have a renewed spirit, a regenerated spirit, in order to genuinely worship me. And you have to do it according to the word of God. When you think about the word worship, I mention it again. The very first mention of it is Genesis 22. When Abraham is about to go sacrifice his son, he's about to lay his son down on the altar, and he's going to sacrifice him. And Abraham said, I and the lad are going to worship. That is worship. These four and twenty elders were prostrate on the ground before him that sat on the throne because his work was finished, because he did all the work, and they realized it wasn't in them, it wasn't of their strength or their might or their power that got them this crown, but they did it all because of him. And what he did and what he endured, the contradiction of sinners that was against him in Hebrews twelve three, And they realize as they cast their crowns before him that he is worthy to receive glory and honor and power for thou hast created all things and for thy pleasure they are and were created. This right here, along with 2 Corinthians 5, along with Romans 14, along with 1 Corinthians chapter 3, is the judgment seat of Christ. If the rapture were to happen 60 seconds from now and those of us in here who are genuinely saved are caught up in the air and we're all hanging out together and we see each other. Remember, time works differently up there than it does down here. 45 seconds. If we're all up in the air 45 seconds from now and we see Christ, it's probably a matter of two minutes in his time while all chaos is going on down here, 30 seconds, before you and I are standing up there before Him, and our entire lives, since we have been saved, 25 seconds, is played out in front of us. And we get to see, what did I do with a pure heart attitude for the Lord to further His kingdom? 15 seconds. If the rapture were to happen, 10 seconds from now, you realize that your day in court is about two minutes away from this very moment in time. 4, 3... Two, one. How about that? God just gave you and I another space of grace. Mm-hmm. It's happening shortly after the rapture of the church. What are you going to say? See in letter five, number five, letter V, Roman numeral. The judgment seat of Christ takes place for every born again believer in Christ that's what they're doing here and as we just saw in number six crowns are rewarded and thrown back at the feet of jesus oh i want to do a whole series on these crowns man we don't have the time for it but you, you trace it throughout the new testament it really boils down to there's five crowns five crowns listen that not the old testament saints and not, uh, I'm not 100% on this, but I'm pretty certain not even the tribulation saints are going to get. These are five crowns that only you and I and church-age saints can have the possibility of getting. Do you know what they are? Do you know what you're striving for? Do you know what you're laboring for? To lay down at the foot of Him which received the wrath of His Heavenly Father for your stead that took the sting of death for you? Here's it is. One, the crown of righteousness That's 2 Timothy 4.8 Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness and not just for me only but for all who look forward to and love His appearing of His kingdom. Rough paraphrase. The crown of righteousness is looking forward to Jesus coming back. Are you looking forward to Jesus coming back? Or are you too comfortable here? Remember, the Bible says we're going to touch on this this coming Sunday. You and I are called pilgrims and strangers here. This is not our home. If it feels like you're home and you're awfully too comfortable here, again, something's amiss. You're missing out on getting a crown that you can cast back at your Savior's feet. Number two, the crown of life. This is described as for remaining steadfast through temptations. See, in Revelation 2.10, we saw this in church history that it was given to saints who lost their life and martyrdom. But in James chapter 1 verse 12 it says blessed is the man that endureth temptation for when he is tried he shall receive the crown of life which the Lord hath promised to them that love him That's interesting Revelation 2:10 says you have to get it through martyrdom And here it's talking about enduring temptation Yeah you know how the two go together Because either way you're dying one is either death for standing up for the Lord Jesus Christ, death physically, or death to self. Because if you want to endure temptation, you want to overcome sin in your life, you need to die daily, Paul said in First Corinthians. You must decrease and He must increase in John 3. You need to take up your cross daily and follow Him. Death to self if you want to earn this crown so that you can cast it back at your Savior's feet. I feel like we're going through the Ten Commandments right now. How are you doing? By By your own profession. I lost. Number three, crown of rejoicing. For believers, you've led to Christ and strengthened. It's known as the soul winner's crown. 1 Thessalonians 2.19 says, For what is our hope or joy or crown of rejoicing? Are not even ye, Thessalonica, in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at His coming? This is for those that you've led to Christ. doesn't necessarily mean they had to pray specifically next to you, but did you have some part? Did you at least seed or did you at least water to lead them to Christ? Were you a link in the chain to their salvation? Number four, the crown of glory. This is for godly leaders who lead God's people. 1 Peter 5. I only put verses 3 to 4 down. He says, Neither as being lords over God's heritage, or heritage, but being end samples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd shall appear, ye shall receive a crown of glory that fadeth not away. This is often associated with pastors or leaders of any kind. But understand something. The context here is talking about shepherds. Have you shepherded somebody else in discipleship? How well did you do? What was the quality of your discipleship? What was the quality of your mentoring, of your leading, of your guiding? Were you an example? Or did you lord over them? You can get this Number five, the incorruptible crown for believers that do not yield to their fleshly lusts. We were just talking about this a couple weeks ago. It's talking about temperance. It's the crown of temperance. You keep under your body and bring it into subjection. You are a slave driver over your body. You are not going to give in to the temptations of this world, the lust of your flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life anymore. These are the five crowns. So I ask you, I ask you the same question I had to ask myself as a sophomore. After spending two years not walking with God, what crowns will you have to lay at His feet? He laid down His very life and bled out every drop of blood He had for you. He ever liveth to make intercession for you. He's praying for you every single day. He's not done with you. What will you have to give back to him? Will you honestly be able to look at your scar, your scar torn Savior and say, I got nothing. Got nothing. I didn't care enough. Because you can't lie at that point anymore. All truth is going to come out. I got nothing. I didn't care. Real quick. The rapture of the church for the second coming most people they conflate these two they're different you see the rapture of the church jesus meets us in the air at the second coming Jesus' feet touch the mount of olives oh i had some passages i wanted to check out but we're going to cover most of these later anyways second corinthians 14 4 says that christ's foot is literally going to touch the top of that mountain and it's going to split in two <laughs> it's going to be incredible to see that mountain just break we're going to be right there with him coming back See at the rapture, his foot never comes back and touches ground. Number two, rapture of the church: the church is called up, but at the second coming of Christ, the saints accompany him down to conquer. It says he's coming back with ten thousands of his saints. That's us. Three, rapture of the church: you have the trumpet; the voice of God is heard, and he calls his people by name. Whereas at the second coming of Christ, a trumpet is sounded by an angel. And lastly. The rapture, a bride is ready for a wedding and marriage supper. But the second coming, the day of the Lord, is after the marriage supper of the Lamb. The two are different. They're not the same. The rapture is not the second coming of Christ. Begins it, but it's not. Letter F. Four readers and we're done. Four volunteers. Sam, Heather, Kendall, Mad Dog. Just go in that order for points one through four. Practical results of a Bible believer understanding the rapture. What's the point of all this? Is it just to know and see some cool passages? To see some cool Old Testament references of when the rapture is going to take place? No. There's a very devotional practical application for you and it starts with you waking up tomorrow with the six days that some of you have left before school's out for the year and you may possibly never see any of these kids again if the Lord comes back in 60 seconds or one hour. Or 24 hours. Number one, you know what this does? It makes us diligent in the Lord's work. Sam. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as you know that your labor is not in vain. We just saw five reasons as to why your labor is not in vain. We can't faint. We can't be weary in well-doing. There is so much on the line. There is so much left to do. Do you guys remember in the book of Joshua, after they conquered all that land, I think it's in chapter 13, and Joshua, he's like, I'm old and stricken in years, and God looks down and says, hey, you're old and stricken in years. Repeats it twice, which I'm sure that made Joshua feel good about himself. You know what God says to him after that? Thou art old and stricken in years, and yet there remaineth so much more land left to conquer. One, two, three, four, five, six. Yeah, there's more land left to conquer. Number two, it makes us fruitful. Colossians 1, 4 to 6. Heather. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus, and of the love which ye have to all the saints, for the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, whereof ye heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel, which is come unto you as it is in all the world, and bringeth forth fruit, as it doth also in you since the day ye heard Hmm. of it and knew the grace of God in truth. Since the day ye heard of it, herein is my Father glorified that ye bear much fruit. Are you bearing much fruit? Is there evidence that shows you belong to the King? Number three. It keeps us serving in humility. 1 Peter 5. Just read verses 5 and 6, Kendall. Likewise, be under. Submit yourselves unto the elder. Yea, all of you be subject one to another and be clothed with humility. God resisteth proud and the grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time. Submit yourselves one to another. Philippians 2 says let each esteem other better than himself. How have you been doing at that? You keep an eye on the fact that the rapture is happening rapidly soon? It'll cause you to take your eyes off yourself and to look at others and what their needs are and to see how you can help your brothers and sisters and lift them up. Because if you're proudful, prideful and proud, God's going to resist you. You're not going to have your prayers answered. Maybe that's the reason why some of your prayers may not have been answered recently. You need to evaluate if that's the case. Have I had a slight or, or a little bit of a prideful arrogance towards somebody else in this room or somebody else, another brother in Christ? Evaluate that. Do business with God. And lastly, oh, I love this. It keeps us pure. Mad Dog, only read verses two and three. Behold we'll two and three. Oh. Yeah. Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when we he shall appear, we shall be like him. Hmm. For we shall see him as he is, and every man that hath this hope in him pur- purifieth himself, even as Do you have the hope of Jesus Christ in you? Do you have the blessed hope that Titus talks about? Of Jesus Christ living and dwelling inside of you? If you have this hope and if you're looking forward to your blessed hope, to the blessed redemption of your body, you keep an eye on that judgment seat. You keep an eye on the rapture of the church that can happen any day now. It'll purify you. Having issues with purity? Having issues with just keeping a clear mind on things? Keeping focused on what matters? Think about this day. Look at some of these other passages we didn't get to tonight. It'll purify your thoughts, all right. It'll keep you pure. Because one day, we're going to appear just as He is. But as we've been studying on Sunday mornings, He doesn't just want us to be perfect on that day. He wants to be in the process of perfecting us to look as much like Him now as we will on that day but it's a two-fold cord it's a two-way street he does his part we've got to do our part so are you doing your part let's pray Father, everyone who does have this hope does purify himself so if we're struggling with that if we're just too tainted by the world if we look just too much like the man of sin rather than the man of God the God-man There's something that's amiss. Help us to rectify that. Help us to course correct that. And God, if there's anybody in here, and maybe a lot of this stuff was over their head, there was a lot to chew off tonight. I hope they understand this. There is a real heaven, and there is a real God that really wants us to go to heaven one day. He wants us to hear those words come up hither. But Lord if we have not surrendered all to You, if we have not come to the point where we have given You our lives and said, Lord Jesus Christ, save me. We're not going to hear that. We're just going to hear more thunder. So I pray, God, You convict us of sin, righteousness, of judgment. I pray that if people need to get saved, they get saved. If they need to get right with You, they get right with You. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.